welcome to the Introduction to Clinical Research podcast. My name is Debbie and I use she, her pronouns. I work in clinical research and I've decided to explain it to my friend Elise. Say hello, Elise. Hello, Elise. Oh my God, we're going to do that every time, aren't we? My name is Elise. (laughs) My pronouns are she, her, hers. I don't work in clinical research. So I'm here to be explained to. Hooray. Which is good English. I'm not going to judge you for how you structure your sentences. I understood what you said. That's all that matters. Hi, everyone. Elise from the future here to let you know we've got a podcast website now. It's intro to clinicalresearch.podbean.com. And there you can find transcripts. We're still working on the backlog, but we should be catching up pretty quick. And you can also find credit to our very cool friend who let us use their music for our intro and outro, Sam Winnie. So thanks, Sam, and hope you enjoy the website and the show. Okay, so what qualifies me to talk about this with my friend Elise? I've been working in clinical research for about 15 years now. Um, I've worked in operations departments, the ones that deliver the research. I've worked in quality assurance teams auditing studies for their compliance with guidelines, regulations, rules. And I've worked in supporting departments and services, providing training, technology and guidance to make sure that everybody's doing the best they can globally. So globally um, means I have lived and worked in the UK and Australia, and I've been lucky enough to travel and work across Europe, um, the US, India, Um, And of course, where I've been domestically, as well as uh, from Australia into New Zealand, I've been very blessed. Um, I should disclose um, what some people may see as a conflict of interest, which is I do work for a contract research organisation. So that is an organisation that makes their money by doing work for pharma companies. So I am on the pharmaceutical industry side of the fence. Um, And I just feel like if I disclose that now, then... People can choose to do with that information what they will. All right. I am passionate about making sure that people um, understand and feel they can trust the outcome of research uh, and they realise where the results come from. They're not just pulled out of thin air. I noticed particularly during the COVID-19 pandemic, I got so many questions from friends and family about the research that was going on, the vaccines, the misinformation and wanting my knowledge from inside the industry. So I'm here to try and share that, to share some things that I know and answer some of the questions. Uh, And hopefully Elise is going to ask some questions that folks may have. So Elise, why are you here? Well, I'm here because I don't know that much about clinical research. So I have all the questions or at least many of them. Um, (laughs) So I'm going to ask you those questions. And Uh, I do have an academic background originally, um, so we know that sometimes my questions get a little on the philosophical abstract side. I'm going to ask them anyway, and if we deem that they're too off topic, um, we're going to throw them into the philosophy ravine, um, which is what we're going to kind of shorthand use to say we're kicking them down the curb um, until we have enough kind of philosophy or abstract questions ethical questions, things like that, gathered to um, 
kind of dedicate an episode to Mm -hmm. hashing those out. So just so you know, if we make jokes about the philosophy ravine, it's where our friend Andy lives. And eventually (laughs) we'll be inviting him onto the podcast probably um, to debate philosophical with me while Debbie... Uh, sits in terror, maybe um, on the side of the ravine. Yeah, but, just tries to do some some science in the background. <laughs> currently, I work in public health, um, not anywhere close to anything related to clinical research. I um, work in emergency management and disaster behavioral health, so maybe someday we'll talk about some of that. But uh, mm. most likely, it's not. It's, it's t- I don't know. We'll find we'll find the intersections with clinical tangentially research, related. Yeah, yeah <laughs> someday. Um, but I'm more interested right now in just being a learner. So and also asking all the questions and slowing Debbie down so that you, the audience, um, can feel slightly superior to me, <laughs> and we can all learn something <laughs> together. Yeah. No. I I am excited for your questions, Elise. I think obviously I've been um, up to my eyeballs in this stuff for years. So. I use jargon and terminology all the time that yourself and anyone that listens isn't necessarily going to know. And I don't know what you don't know, obviously. Um, So, yeah, feel free to ask um, any questions and they may get kicked into the philosophy ravine and Andy can can hang out with those questions until we pull them all out. So in this and future episodes, I'm going to tell Elise about the process of clinical research the history, where we've come from, some of the tragedies and things that we've learnt, and the practicality for how research works. There's a lot that we can discuss. We're going to take it bit by bit. So let's dive in to setting the scene as to what is clinical research. Are you ready, Elise? So ready. Great. So we're going to talk a little bit today about the types and categories of clinical research and what we do with the research results, right? So setting the scene for the big picture, what we're doing, where the information goes. But before we can talk about research, we have to understand that the reason that we're doing research is to try and improve healthcare and clinical practice. So clinical practice is any health or well-being interaction that you may have with a doctor, a nurse, a pharmacist, a radiologist, any healthcare professional. Clinical practice in evidence-based medicine uses treatments, interventions, activities that we know work and we know they work based on an established body of evidence. Which comes from... So we collect data about what we're doing. Clinical research. Yeah. So some some of the initial data comes from clinical research, but also as we continue to use things, we're always gathering information about how it's doing. So research is the process of looking at something to answer a question. And clinical research investigates treatments, policies, care structures, any of these kinds of things that may change clinical practice. There's lots of different types of research, whether it's conducted in a lab to a new treatment or device that's tested to see if it's safe or it works. Clinical research is the research that's conducted in humans in the medical field. So that's what we're going to be talking about. So, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, there's other research besides what's conducted in humans, right? So, yeah, absolutely. It's not clinical research if it's not conducted in people. Yeah. Absolutely. 
So before you put like a new medicine into into a person, there'll be preclinical research that includes laboratory testing and animal testing. But there's also like veterinary research that will be, be conducted in animals for animals. That's not clinical research. That would be veterinary research. Okay. So it's, even if it's, you know, similar. Yeah. So it's still investigating like drugs or interventions for animals. It's just not called cl- clinical research because we keep those categories separate. Yes. Cool. Absolutely. So now that we've got the big picture, we also subcategorize. So we break down the big ball that is clinical research. We subcategorize by type. And um, there are probably multiple ways that you can subcategorize research. We're going to talk in a future episode about the phases that um, you have to go through of research. Um, But one of the clearest categorizations is between interventional and non-interventional study types. So anything where something is done to a patient, such as they're given a new drug, we use a new type of diagnostic tool on them, a new surgical technique, somebody's doing something to a patient, they're intervening with the patient, that is an interventional study. Their care is changing for the research to test a hypothesis. There are also non-interventional study types. And this kind of research is observing existing treatments. So things that may be out there in the world and, and going along. We're not changing anything about what's happening to the patient. We're just seeing what they're up to. It could be reviewing a package of existing data, doing some new analysis on it, but we're not changing anything for a particular patient. Okay? Yes. We could be asking a patient to complete a questionnaire. So their their care isn't changing. We're just asking them how they feel about it. So that's that's still clinical research, asking for a questionnaire. Yes. Because it involves humans. I guess, like, you know, I always think of, like, okay, you jabbed me with a needle, you put something in my body, but, like, just... Asking yeah. about how I want to report how I feel or what symptoms I had or anything like that counts as being conducted in humans enough that we're calling it clinical mm-hmm. research. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So if I wanted to do a questionnaire about, you know, how you feel about the number of uh, flowers in your local public parks, for example... That would be a questionnaire. That would be research, but it's nothing to do with the medical healthcare field, so it wouldn't be clinical. Right. Whereas in this case, if I'm asking you a questionnaire, the reason that it falls under the umbrella of clinical research is because there are measures and controls in place about what kind of research we can do. So if I want to talk to you or anyone else as a patient, I have to get certain approvals to be able to do that. And even something as simple as a questionnaire, it may require some kind of ethical or other approval to make sure that, you know, this questionnaire isn't going to cause you harm in some way. Right. And it also has the potential, unlike the flower questionnaire, to impact current clinical practice, which flowers in my local park has nothing to do with my interaction with a doctor or a pharmacist or anything like that. Unless it does, but I doubt it. I can't really see how that would work. 
I, I mean, never say never, but I don't know how there would be <laughs> I don't a, know. a maybe link something there. to do with But allergies. the flowers in your local park, if you answered a questionnaire on that, it could affect like local your local council's policy on planting more or less. In which case, civic research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly, yeah. exactly. Cool. cool. So, research needs to be conducted to demonstrate that any change in clinical practice, if it's implemented, is going to be safe and it's going to work. Um, the word that is used is efficacious, but that just means does it work? Right. Is it effective? For drug or device interventions, so a drug, a medicine, a pill, an injection, a vaccine, that's what people think about a lot when they think about clinical research, like you just said, oh, I'm sticking a needle in you with a new drug. But also devices. So a device could be an artificial hip or an artificial knee, could be a pacemaker, um, an insulin pump, surgical instruments. They're all devices that require research and approval. So for a drug or device that's um, experimental or under investigation, before it's made widely available, they need to be approved by government bodies. And obviously, each country has their own government body. So for you, Elise, in the USA, that's the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. For me, myself, I'm currently in the UK and our regulator are called the MHRA, Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency. Why it's not the HP, MHPRA, I don't know, but it isn't. Why um, not? And Just when I used to live in Australia, <laughs> when I used to live in Australia, it was the TGA, the Therapeutic Goods Administration, right? So these are the government regulators that review and approve drugs and devices. For a drug or device to be approved, the government regulator has to see a package of data to say, yes, we're happy that this is safe and this works. And in order to get that package of data, whoever owns the experimental drug or device has to conduct a series of studies to prove that it's safe and that it works. Okay. <clears throat> so, all right. Go on a journey with me. I mentioned I'm an academic for by training mm -hmm. back in the day. It's been a few years, but that's for the better. <laughs> um, and when I was an academic, I went to a lot of medical communication conferences and talks and things like that because that was my field of research. Um, and so I'm thinking about devices. And one of the talks yep. that I went to at a medical uh, communication conference was about a new um, speculum that had been developed, which uh, if you aren't familiar with the word, it's a device used uh, to conduct study or to, to clinical practice for people with vaginas um, so that they can have pap smears and other tests done. Um, and they are notorious for sucking. They suck. <laughs> oh, they're, they're awful. cold and metal whole, and hard yep. and too big and all these things that make them horrible. But they've been mm -hmm. the practice for a long time. So this uh, conference was about a better speculum. Mm. It was silicone right. and it was smaller and it was still very effective according to the my memory of what the people at the conference said. Right. So if that's approved, like assuming all that testing and regulation whatever has happened why mm -hmm. haven't i ever seen one in use 
Yeah, they're still using the the or should I say, yeah, speculum. felt one in use because frankly, it's not like the doctor like holds it up and says this is the speculum, right? <laughs> Ooh, yeah, <laughs> just to pre- okay. okay anyway. So that's a great question, and there's a big if, which is that if they've done the research and if it has been approved, True. yeah, and we can look that up because that's publicly available information as to what devices are approved. Um, we could look that up. In terms of once something is approved, how it gets into use, then you're looking at um, medical sales, which is not something that I have done. Um, And you're also impacted by the healthcare environment that you're working in. So obviously in the US, you've got a a different setup of your for-profit system compared to us in the UK with our National Health Service. So our National Institute of Clinical Excellence, nice, which is the best... That's, oh, I thought you were just ever. saying nice. I was like, why? No, the, no that's its acronym. Nice. Oh, N-I-C-E. Wow. Nice. Nice. They set the prescribing guidelines for the NHS. Uh, and they do that based off the evidence of whether the drug works, but also the cost. So if something works a little bit, but is exorbitantly expensive, they're maybe not going to recommend it because public sector only has a certain amount of pounds in the pot. So it could be that NICE have not recommended the use of this new silicon speculum that's, you know, made and designed by people with vaginas for yeah, people with vaginas, yeah. right? Um, because it costs too much? It could be. I'd, I don't know. I am speculating. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the difficulty is whether you're in the UK or the US or anywhere, there's decision makers as to what products are available. Ah, so it's misogyny. Because when you say decision makers, mm-hmm. I know who to picture. As, I work for the mm-hmm, government. Mm-hmm. I know who that is. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and, I, and and in that situation, unfortunately, um, the decision makers are in our, you know, current white supremacist, cis-heteronormative patriarchy, white men. And they're not going to think, oh, we need a new type of speculum. Because they they're not experiencing the current cheese grater. Um, I hate whereas that analogy so much. But, but it's you're not so wrong. Accurate. You're not wrong. I know that's why it's terrible. Um, and evidence shows that when you change the decision makers, the decisions that are made change. Absolutely. So, assuming that the device has been approved and is as safe and efficacious, works as well as. The previous version the reason that it may not have been implemented widely is a decision-based one there's nothing to stop a doctor in private practice going and saying i want to use those even if they cost ten dollars more because they're better for my patient there's nothing to stop you saying to your doctor oh hey i heard of this new thing can we can we try it can we get it that's a way to be a really good advocate for yourself as a patient but for like me in the nhs to get something like that through the system is an, is an enormous ordeal. Gotcha. Did I answer your question? You did. You answered my question. And it, what a lovely journey we yeah, went on. Yeah, capitalism and misogyny. It's the baseline of 90%. <laughs> I mean, hey, oh, yep. Okay, we got to throw racism in there if we're going to claim 90%. <laughs> yeah, oh, 100%. I mean, capitalism 100%. by nature is racist. And so- okay, the philosophy ravine. The, the philosophy Throw ravine is lurking. I can see Andy's little head. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Back on yeah. track. So 
the the if that was at the start of my answer to that question is about right if they've done the testing if they've got that body of evidence and they've got the approval right the important thing is that body of evidence that we're collecting whether it's about a new drug a vaccine or a new speculum um it's more than just opinions or a collection of a few stories or experiences so um you know we've all heard stories about i i tried this new thing and and my hair grew 10 times as fast or whatever it may be. That's called a case study. So a patient or a person's experiences is often um, documented and they're reported in journals, in scientific journals as case studies um, or anecdotal findings. So someone said this. They absolutely have their place in the research framework. I'm not dismissing them at all. Um, but they alone are not enough to get a drug approved. They're often really good as like an early flag of somewhere that you might want to go and do more research. OK, so, for example, just because my cousin's eczema got better when they switched to a vegan diet doesn't mean that a vegan diet cures eczema because it's a correlation, not a causation. Right. So is an interesting statement and I would want to do more research. I'd want to find out, is there a mechanism of action that we can uncover to understand why a vegan diet may be a valid treatment? Is there something in a vegan diet that's decreasing the amount of reactivity or inflammation in this person's skin? Or is there another variable that is that was changed at the same time as the dietary change that may also contribute to the improved eczema. So did they change their laundry detergent at the same time and they've, and they've switched brand um, and they don't have a reaction to the new brand or you know what did the seasons change and we're out of allergy season and that um, correlates with a, a improvement in their eczema. So that's what we're going to want to find out. And then we want to check if it is the vegan diet, we want to check, is this something that works for a wider band of the population than just my cousin? Because obviously, if we're going to um, make something widely available, we want it to work for as many people as possible. Or at least we want to know who it works for so we can give it to the right people. And that's what research is looking at. Does this work? Does it work consistently, predictably for people? Um, and what you have to do in research is to try and reduce as many variables as possible in order to show that any change that you see, whether that's, you know, your hair grows faster or your eczema improves or your blood pressure lowers, that change is caused by the thing that you're researching, whether it's a drug, a device, a diet, whatever it could be. Okay, so in this case, that was going vegan. Right. And to do this, to prove that, you need laboratory study data, preclinical studies, you need animal testing data, and you also need data from randomised controlled clinical trials. The way you said that indicates to me, you just, you said it like it's capital letters. Just the the whole that your tone of voice changed, and you presented R C T. Yeah, yeah, because they <laughs> are an acronym. Mm -hmm. You can hear it. It is, <laughs> and I'm trying to be so careful not to be like, uh, we need R C Ts, and then Elise would say, "What's an R C T?" 
I'm trying to think ahead of what you might mm-hmm. ask me. So these types of studies, RCTs, they're methodologically one of the best that we have to gather statistically powerful data if we're comparing two things against the, an outcome. The RCT, randomized controlled clinical trial. So you can have randomized controlled trials, RCTs, outside of the clinical oh. environment. You could do it in any any kind of research that you want to do. You could do a randomized controlled trial. If you're comparing two or more things against an outcome, you can do it right. in a randomized okay. controlled that, that way. That tracks with... Okay, so RCT is randomized controlled trial and then we're doing it in a clinical setting for clinical research purposes correct okay thank you so for example if i want to compare two drugs drug a and drug b um and i want to see which one of these drugs is better at lowering the blood pressure of my patients assuming that they're both blood pressure lowering medicines in order to do this i have to have some patients with high blood pressure who choose to participate voluntarily. I need drug A and drug B at the correct safe dose. Um, And I need a protocol, so a set of instructions as to how many doses of this drug they're going to get for how long and how many times I'm going to measure their blood pressure to see if anything changes. So my patients will be randomly, hence randomized, be put into two groups. One group will get drug A, one group will get drug B. Often, we don't tell the patients or the doctors doing the research which drug which group has got. They won't even know who's in what group. Okay? Both the doctors so that means and that... the patients don't know. Or it's some... Correct. Okay. This is... And that means they're blinded to the treatment. So you may have heard... Um, single or double blind study designs Mm -hmm. so single blind is if like just the patient doesn't know but the doctor does double blind is if neither the patient nor the doctor knows and uh blinded being a word that i have heard criticized in this setting for being ableist so i don't Mm -hmm. know how wide that criticism is kind of taken up among disability advocates or um Anything like that, but I have heard the criticism before, and I've heard alternatives um, using the word mask, masked studies, as opposed to blind or or blinded studies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Completely valid. And interestingly, in ophthalmological studies, so studies Mm. involving your eyes, the word to be blinded has certain connotations. Um, So in those studies, they always use masked. Interesting. Um, so it's possible for the industry to use yeah. um, universal design. That, just use the thing that makes the most sense that everybody can yeah, benefit from. Absolutely. It's, it's possible for them to do it, but they haven't. Um, and I'll, in my career, the only time I've seen masks to be used is in relation to studies involving the eyes. Interesting. Um, but I'm, I'm absolutely more than happy... Um, for you to have raised that point, completely valid. I will do my best to remember to say masked. Um, I'm obviously like all of us, right? Trying to do better, trying to be better, but working against 15 years of programming. So if I get it wrong, call me out. Okay. So the, the random assignment and the masking, they are both ways of reducing bias in the study. Even if all of the people that are running research are the best ethical human beings we can expect them to be, if we take it out of human control, there's no chance for even unconscious bias to have an impact. 
Okay. So I, as the doctor, I can't pick my top 10 best favoritist patients and put them in group A. And I can't tell them what drug they're getting is because I don't know. Mm-hmm. I can't put my least favorite patients in group B because I think if I think drug A is better, there's a chance for bias to be introduced if I know who's in what group and who's getting what drug. Right. Similarly, if the patient knows what drug they're getting, they might feel some motivation not to report if they're experiencing an adverse event like a headache or nausea or whatever it may be. Right. So um, randomized controlled trials are powerful because they allow us to compare two things. And whether that's, as in the example we just discussed, two active products like two drugs, or you can compare an active product to a control group or a placebo Right. So a group that doesn't receive the thing. And that's how you can compare the two. So you can compare an active drug against a sugar pill, for example. Right. Any questions? No, I mean, that all tracks. When I was in academics, I wasn't doing clinical research, but we did set. Oh, we did spend a lot of time worrying about <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. research design, uh, methodology, things like that. And randomized controlled trials and masked double masked uh was a concern in my field too so um this all kind of makes a lot of sense and yeah yeah reducing reducing avenues for human bias um as much as possible makes yeah it's still gonna creep in of course i mean there's no way to completely eliminate it but reducing it as much as possible and this is obviously a a pretty solid method for that, in my opinion. Good. Okay. So now that we've got some of those fundamentals sketched out in terms of we know what clinical research is, we know about a couple of different types of research, we know about a powerful study design and some some terminology, some jargon, right, with um, blinding or masking and randomization. I thought it would be a good time for us to have a little look at an example. Um, and we're going to look at the COVID vaccines because... I got so many questions about them um, in 2020, 2021. Um, yeah, the early days before it's been f- going into its fourth year. Did you see the WHO yeah. release that thing? It was like, as we turn into the fourth year, I was like, no. Anyway, mm. go on. COVID vaccines. Um, yeah, yeah. So in the pre-COVID world, which as you were uh indicating who can remember that far back um you you may have seen reports on a new like wonder drug that just released its early phase results but then they'd they'd say at the end of the news report you know oh but it may take 10 to 15 years for the drug to be approved and on the market Mm -hmm. i do remember that or Mm. i or i remember seeing something when i was like in high school and everyone's like this is so promising to treat aids or whatever and then never hear about it again Mm-hmm, that's another memory mm-hmm. i have like why isn't this a thing yeah so when we start talking about the phases of research we're going to look at failure rates uh, and how many drugs fail along this development pipeline and that i think will be a little bit eye-opening in terms of why you may have seen something say oh this new wonder drug is going to be amazing for this and then just nothing just tumbleweed <laughs> okay so if it normally takes 10 to 15 years for a drug to be approved and available How did we manage to do it in less than a year for the COVID vaccines? It feels like in order for it to happen that quickly, we must have cut some corners, right? We must have done something dodgy. Great question. (laughs) 
Elise. Thanks, Debbie. I have so many. <laughs> uh-huh. There's a few reasons, okay? So, right. Firstly, because we're developing a vaccine, a vaccine is a little bit different to a lot of other drugs that you may wish to develop because you're not trying to interrupt a process. You're not trying to kind of change the direction of something or stop something happening. You are trying to initiate a normal bodily function in terms of the immune system. You're trying to kind of kickstart that response to behave in exactly the way it has behaved your whole life. Um, the only difference is it's be- it's doing the response against something inert rather than an active infection. So we know a lot about how vaccines behave. We know quite a bit, although not everything, about how the immune system responds to certain stimuli, certain things being thrown at it. So we're working in an environment that already is quicker and easier in some ways to do research than for something like cancer or heart disease when they're when what we're trying to do is way more complex than go immune system right um the outcome that we're measuring did the patient get the disease yes or no was their disease more or less severe it's quick to measure particularly for something like covid where everybody had incubation Sorry? I said where everybody had it all the time, but that wasn't what you sure. were going to say. Mm-mm. The incubation period is short, right? It's not months or years. It's days or a week. So it's quick for you to get the data to see, well, that group had a vaccine. That group did not have a vaccine. How's the exposures looking? And similarly, what you said, right? Everybody had it. The number of COVID cases were really high. The rate at which the virus was circulating was really high, which meant that there were cases happening. So you could compare the vaccine versus the placebo. Something like smallpox, for example, where there are no cases, touch wood, thank goodness. um, You couldn't test a smallpox vaccine today because you would have no way of proving that your vaccine was more effective than a placebo because there'd be no cases. Whereas if, if everybody on your study has COVID within a month or two, you can prove, well, that group had 30% less or they all got it. They all tested positive, but their disease lasted a week less. Yeah. Or was milder for these measures, whatever it may be. That tracks. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Also, I think we all remember, well, maybe not. Maybe we blocked it out of our memory, but I certainly remember at the time when COVID um, was really in its peak, 2020, 2021, all of the resources that are usually split in a healthcare environment and in our pharmaceutical research environment, all of the things that are normally split across multiple different studies were all aimed at COVID. Yes. So that meant doctors, nurses, um, everybody was all looking at this one problem to try and solve it. Yep. Which meant that everything that we had was throwing was thrown against it. The kitchen sink, the whole lot. How do we fix this problem? That included the regulators looking really closely at the data in real time. One of the biggest time savings is in normal pre-COVID and now post-COVID or ongoing COVID world, I should say, to get a study up and running in the UK 
ballpark from like, I've got a good idea to there's my first patient, maybe about six months. Okay. In COVID, they were doing it in two to three weeks. And these are the kind of time savings that you can see when nothing else is going on. All you're doing is that one project because that's the biggest problem in front of you at that moment. Couple that with the duration of something like a COVID infection and how easy it was to measure because of the number of cases and all of the stuff that we knew about vaccines meant we were starting, we're kind of starting from a jog rather than a dead stop. Right. That meant that we could get these vaccines out and reviewed through all of the same processes as a medicine that may take 10 years would go through, but in that shorter time frame. There wasn't a drop in quality and corners weren't cut. It was just a few reasons that meant that it could happen so much quicker. You couldn't have done that if it wasn't an infectious disease that was treatable with a vaccine. You couldn't do it with something like cancer because treating cancer is longer right. than one or two jabs. Yeah, I mean, it's like, um, <clears throat> I think about like, like a river that's really, really wide and shallow, moves quite slow um, because it just doesn't have force. But if you suddenly narrow and de- and and add depth to the riverbed, right, then suddenly there's a mm-hmm. lot of force shoving a little bit of water through a or like a lot of water through a smaller gap. And it's going and, yep. it, and that's what produces high volume it flow. Faster. It picks up more sediment. Right. I mean, we can take this metaphor pretty far, but like the idea of like, yeah, it's moving faster and it has a lot more force behind it. And yep. if you think like all of that clinical research that essentially got stalled because of covid and everybody said all eyes on finding treatments and finding vaccines and everything that was that yes. essential bottlenecking of that flow of, of normal slow flow of the river and suddenly it was yeah. just shoving things through that pipeline way faster yeah. and what's interesting now is exactly what you said about all of the other research was paused now or not just now like the last year or so we're trying to pick all that other research back up i bet and in the uk our our health services is just really under the pump and under-resourced and underfunded and so to to be able to do that is it's really challenging yeah so especially um, because of the high rates of burnout that covid um kind of brought about in a lot of different aspects of health fields i mean absolutely that's something our yeah um um nhs staff here yeah. are we had a we had a there was a thing i think it was thursday nights people went out and clapped for the nhs oh yeah um to kind of show their support which yes okay yep. lovely what uh-huh. a nice gesture but um that doesn't solve the problem of the fact that the nhs has been chronically underfunded for years okay all right we're coming towards the end so i'm gonna i'm gonna kind of try to pull everything together and wrap it all up okay. right so With any change in clinical practice, we talked at the beginning what clinical practice is. We do research to try and change it. We have to have that body of evidence to prove that it is safe and and it works. Safe and and effective. effective. Those are the words. Efficacious, yes. That it, it is the right thing to do statistically for the people in the population that we want to give it to. Okay, whether that's you or me, a pregnant person, a child, John down the street, whoever. No, there is a process that has to be followed to collect the data and government bodies want to review it, approve it in order for the drug to be available. This process, depending on the nature of the research, the target, the timeline of how long it takes to measure the outcome that we want, 
Like, did you get the disease or not? Or was your cancer cured in five years? If it's that five-year timeline, you've got to wait five years. These things determine whether the study will run for a few weeks or a few years, and therefore whether your development will take a year or 15. There is unfortunately no one-size-fits-all answer, which isn't very satisfying to our human brains that love simple answers without nuance or context. Importantly, and we touched on this when we talked about non-interventional study types, even once a drug is approved, the research doesn't stop. If a new result changes our knowledge about how an approved drug works, its safety, its interactions, clinical practice should change. So the AstraZeneca vaccines, where we saw the cases of blood clots, Mm -hmm. these reports came through and they occurred at a higher rate for patients who'd had the vaccines than the general population would experience in them. So there's a correlation. And as a result of that, the prescribing guidelines in the UK, for example, were changed. So people my age didn't receive the AstraZeneca vaccine. They would have got Pfizer or Moderna. Right. And it's the same for anything that's on the market. There's research that happens after the drug is approved. And we'll go into more detail on that when we talk about the the pipeline, the process that we have to go through. Um, And these kind of signals, we're looking for them to see, do we need to change clinical practice? Because we want what we're doing with patients, what we're providing to be the best it can be. And the only way we can do that is if we have evidence. Okay. So we've talked about what clinical research is. We've looked at interventional and non-interventional study types. I did throw a lot of jargon around. (laughs) Um, And we looked at why the research was conducted, including with our COVID vaccine case study. So, Elise, how would you teach somebody? How would you explain what I uh, said to you today back to somebody else in your own words? This is the quiz at the end. The sting in the tail. I love for quizzes at the end. Um, well, clinical research is, first you have to know what clinical practice is because clinical research affects clinical practice. So clinical Mm -hmm. practice is like your interactions with the doctor, pharmacist or nurse, anything that is about kind of the care, the healthcare interactions. Yeah. And interventions that would happen in the healthcare setting. Mm -hmm. So then clinical research is the process by which we uh, make decisions around new or changing clinical practices or things Mm -hmm. that could change clinical practice, such as introducing a new drug or a new device or altering one like a, a speculum could be made of silicon to help us not feel like a cheese grater. So terrible. It's <laughs> up there. Um, yeah, so, okay. Uh, and then there's um, preclinical research that happens before humans get involved, for the most part. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Uh, and then clinical research is when you do the studies in people. Um, mm-hmm. That can include things like surveys or questionnaires um, where people report back about something without, and that's a non-interventionist study, Um Interventional, non- not interventionist. Interventional, yes. It's not international politics, I guess. Um, non-interventional <laughs> study um, versus things like where you're getting shots or using a new device or something like that, which is yeah. a change to the what you're 
actually doing. Um, and so that's an interventional study. It has to be proven safe and effective. And there are regulators mm-hmm. like the FDA and the MH, not P-R-A. <laughs> Amazing. Um, I can't believe you remembered that. Uh, now ask me what it means. I don't know. No, I'm know. not going <laughs> to. Um, and um, these regulators are government entities that make sure mm-hmm. they review the research and make sure that it is all looks good dandy dandy that's a lovely word for it um there's something called nice that i learned about (laughs) the national institute of clinical excellence yeah nice um and (laughs) they yeah i don't know anything really about nice but um the fda and the mhra um they yes they are regulators and they are government entities and they make sure that you are getting a safe and effective product if you're getting it at in your clinical practice yeah and the covid vaccine is an example of this that happened recently and it's safe and effective and we did not cut corners to produce it quickly because all of our attention was focused on it and everybody was doing it. And we also know a lot about vaccines and how they work. Um, And everybody was getting sick. So we had plenty of data to use. Oh, it sounds so terrible when you put it like that. But yeah. (laughs) To the ravine, There was just so much of this disease going around and and being really terrible and and killing people. That's why scientists get the bad rap in movies. That's why, yeah. yeah, just, that's okay. We'll, we'll get there Apart from when day. the scientist is played by Jeff Goldblum and then they're two thumbs up. <laughs> I'm thinking of the dinosaur movie and the alien movie. Unfortunately for you, my pop culture references are so hit or miss that I'm like, yes, as you said, I know. Jurassic Park. I know it's Jurassic Park. Independence I knew, Day. Nope, I had no idea it was Independence Day. I knew you were referencing okay. Jurassic Park. Um, I have not seen a Jurassic Park movie since I was a child. That's all I got for you. <laughs> Listeners, I'm blinking slowly at Elise because I just, I'm now having to reconsider friendship? my friendship oh, with Elise. No. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. of Jurassic Park? But, yeah. Okay. Jeff Goldblum, Laura Dern, Sam Neill. I just. I don't even mm. know who Sam Neill is. That name means nothing to me. Laura Dern, I got unlock. <laughs> yeah, Laura Dern is. Yeah, I'm too bisexual not mm-hmm. to know why mm-hmm. Laura Dern. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Same. But Sam Neill is excellent. How uh, my my how the tables out. have turned. <laughs> These turntables have turntables. None of this is staying in, Elise. Yeah, this is all no, wildly off topic. This has to stay in. This is how people build connections to us, Debbie. If you cut this, I'll be mad. <laughs> Um, I need to, um, there's gotta be a way for me to enforce this to me. Uh, Next episode we record, I'm going to like reference them at all times so that you can't cut it out. This is my master plan. All right. You want to close this out for us? Yep. You did great, Elise. You remembered loads of things. I'm really proud of you. You definitely got an A plus on that quiz. Including how many of the actors in Jurassic Park? How many of them? Two out of three? <laughs> Laura Dern. <laughs> Sam. Neil. That's one. That's Sam one out Neil. of three. All right. Okay. So we hope you enjoyed listening to our podcast. If you have any questions or you'd like to get in touch with us, 
Um, so you can give Elise your questions to ask me. Uh, you can email us at clinical.research.intro at gmail.com. Please do subscribe to you so you get the next episode automatically. And of course, please do rate and review. Every podcaster has said that, I'm sure. You can also check out the Clinical Research 101 Instagram page. That's on Instagram at clinical.research.intro. That's it from us today. So thanks and goodbye from me, Debbie. Say goodbye, Elise. If you Elise. want more of just Debbie and Elise shooting the shit so that you can build a connection with us as you learn about clinical research, make sure to put it in your reviews so that Debbie doesn't cut beautiful, beautiful friendship building like the Jurassic Park exchange out of this episode. Bye.